This is only a test. Testing. Testing. Carol Lloyd here, editorial director of Great Schools, with the second episode of Like a Sponge, our new podcast about the science of learning and kids. I admit I'm a little nervous about the topic of this episode because people have such strong opinions about it. And there's also a lot of misinformation. And it's not the sexiest topic in the world. So here goes. Standardized testing. Depending on where you stand, standardized testing is either an essential measuring stick to help kids succeed or a damaging distraction where teachers are drilling students on multiple choice answers. Okay, children, the answers to the standardized test fall into 12 basic patterns. Repeat after me. A caca, dabaca, a cacaca. A caca, a caca, a caca. And comedians draw humiliating source material. Standardized tests, uh, the fastest way to terrify any child with five letters outside of just whispering the word clown. If you're not familiar with grade schools, it's worth explaining why this topic feels so sticky. We're a nonprofit that provides tons of resources for parents to help with their children's education. But we're best known for our school information site that rates schools partly based on test scores. So we talk a lot about tests, their value, their limits, what they tell us about a school, and what they don't. We also find ourselves tiptoeing through a veritable landmine of controversies. Angry parents opting their kids out of the tests, politicians embracing oodles of standardized testing only to pull a 180 and call for their instant eradication. And on the other side, a growing movement of activists who use these test scores to demand better schools. So we're going to dive into the science of testing and untangle some of the truths that everyone agrees on. And of course, clarify how the experts differ. Why do we give kids standardized tests? I wanted to find someone who believes in the value of test data for a higher good. One name kept coming up. Ryan Smith uses test score data every day to advocate for educational justice. But to understand exactly what that means and why he does what he does, it's useful to rewind time back to when he was a little boy in Los Angeles, being raised by a single mom in a neighborhood with schools where she saw few opportunities. She spent her life savings to move from one community in uh, Los Angeles to a uh, community called Culver City because she heard the schools were good. In the U.S., this isn't unusual. Tons of parents make huge sacrifices to get access to better schools. But it struck Ryan as inherently wrong. No parent should have to spend their entire life savings to move from one community to another. There should be quality public schools in every community, particularly as the richest country in the world. There is no reason why uh, there should be writ large failure if you're in um, Compton versus Culver City or if you're in Boyle Heights, which is in East L.A., compared to Beverly Hills. That not only is it a civil rights issue, it's also, um, it's also just shameful uh, because children don't have the agency to do something different. What does Ryan's frustration have to do with standardized tests, you say? Well, 
As executive director of EdTrust West, he uses test score data as a policy weapon. The reason for this is that the facts are pretty bleak when it comes to American K-12 education. About 80% of high school students graduate. But here's the problem. Two-thirds of those graduates don't have the basic math and reading skills needed to be ready for college or anything more than dead-end jobs. And most of these kids with useless diplomas, they're from low-income communities of color. The idea is that if you can shine a light on how these kids are not getting anywhere near the education they deserve, politicians and influencers will do something to prioritize education. And for the stiff shirts walking the marbled halls of government, anecdotes are not enough. You need data. It's really about an an equity imperative. The kids that we don't test usually don't count. And we've seen time and time again when we don't have data um, reflecting how students of color, uh, low-income students, students with disabilities, how they're faring, that actually has implications for what is done in classrooms and what is done in schools and what's done in education systems. In other words, if we don't shine a light on academic achievement gaps, it's easy to ignore the kids on the wrong side of those gaps. But Ryan told me that standardized testing can also backfire. Back in the dawn of No Child Left Behind, when George W. Bush first introduced the idea of standardized testing to compare schools and identify what's become known as failing schools, the process often incentivized the wrong things. There was a time where the goal uh, for many of our schools was how we hit the state average, right? And it didn't matter how we got there. So instead of focusing on all students improving, schools only focused on the kids who were just shy of proficient. This way, the schools could raise their proficiency rates with the least amount of effort. Schools could neglect kids who were way above grade level or very far behind. In this way, many children did get left behind. The goal did not include how do we make sure we're bringing uh, students of color, African-American students, Latino students, English learners, students with disabilities um, in that equation. No school should be considered good if black, brown, and low-income students are failing. Now, instead of focusing on the average proficiency for a whole school, schools are focusing on improving test scores for the most vulnerable groups. Because that, according to Ryan Smith, is where our schools are really struggling. What the data shows is that students who start behind after they go through our school system um, leave way further behind than when they started. In other words, the achievement gap is hella wide. In the past 30 years, it's been growing. And though in recent years, it seems to be getting smaller We're talking about generations before the gap actually closes. Take my home state in California. Um, All Latino students won't meet standards in math if we continue at this current trajectory that we're on right now until the year uh, 2047. All black students won't meet standards in math until the year um, 2052. And if you look at English learners, they wouldn't meet standards in math until the year 2103. In other words, many of us will not live to see that day. The other reason for a standard measure of children's learning? The problem with grade inflation. I've seen time and time again where we see students who are getting A's, who are doing everything they should be doing, 
uh, in order to thrive. And when they apply for college and they have to actually pull together their essay, admissions officers will say, I can't read this. This child can't even properly put together a paragraph. And when students get that feedback, they go, wait a minute, I've gone through the system, I've done everything right. Why is that the case? Because unfortunately, we see things like grade inflation in, in communities of color. We have to make sure that, particularly in schools and districts that have a history of underperformance, that we can't just rely on grades. We need other data, and, and tests provide that data. This issue of grade inflation wasn't new to us. We interviewed a woman who had been a straight-A student and ended up getting placed in remedial classes in college. We've also seen how grade inflation can mislead parents. According to recent research, 90% of parents think their child's on track academically for college but less than 40% of kids are working at grade level. So isn't all the hating on standardized testing just a case of blaming the messenger for bad news? I went in search of another side of the debate. Linda Darling-Hammond, professor emeritus at Stanford School of Education and president of the Learning Policy Institute, is one of the country's most articulate critics of standardized testing in the U.S., but she's not arguing against their very existence. It's how we're using them that is, as my mother used to say, downright bass awkward. I am not a critic of assessment generally, but I do think we are misusing standardized tests in the United States. I think the tests exist to give another perspective on what students uh, know and what they uh, understand. Uh, They have, however, in recent years been used increasingly to make high-stakes decisions about students and what uh, they can uh, take in terms of a program or whether they can be promoted or graduated, about teachers and whether they will get paid more money or retained in the teaching force, about schools and whether they will be um, continued or closed. And that use of testing is new. Uh, That began really around 2002 with No Child Left Behind. And that's pretty unusual, both in the United States and around the world. You've been sort of a vocal critic of standardized testing in the U.S. So what's different about how testing works in other countries? In many other countries, especially those that are high achieving, their assessments are open-ended. They use them much less frequently Kids answer essay questions and problem solutions, and in places like Singapore or Australia or the United Kingdom, they are also doing projects as Mm. part of the assessment system where they might design and conduct a science investigation. They might write a social science research Mm. paper. Um, They might do a collaborative project and Mm -hmm. present their results. Darling Hammond's point is that the test focuses on a narrow set of reading, writing, and math skills, just a small sampling of the educational smorgasbord. The tests don't assess subjects like science, art, foreign language, engineering, or skills like speaking, collaborating, designing. So if tests are used to decide if teachers get raises, for instance, teachers will naturally spend more time teaching the skills that are tested. Darling Hammond's big beef? Multiple choice tests, where kids are just just sitting there and saying, can I find or guess at one answer out of five that are predetermined, which actually is 
in my view, cognitively toxic because you're just waiting for somebody else to provide the answer. The questions are necessarily very low level Mm -hmm. recall and recognition Mm -hmm. type questions. And if that drives the curriculum, Mm -hmm. you are reducing the amount of time in the curriculum for, you know, uh, thinking and writing and um, use of technology and oral presentations and investigation and inquiry, which are the skills that are absolutely essential in the 21st century. Darling Hammond's perspective is hard to argue with. Life isn't a multiple choice test. And high stakes repercussions, like whether a child gets to go on to the next grade or graduate from high school, which has been the case in some states like Florida, can create perverse incentives. The good news is that the new Common Core tests rely far less on multiple choice. Those tests are better than the tests that preceded them. Mm -hmm. Um, They are more focused on higher order thinking and performance skills. Um, so they, they help. They uh, should be used for information and improvement, not for sanctions and punishments, so that they drive the right kind of uh, work in the classroom. Uh, they also need to be augmented with even more ambitious kinds of performance assessments, like the project-based assessments that are used in other countries. There's no doubt that testing has come a long way. You probably wouldn't even recognize the tests your kids took this year. Today's assessments measure critical thinking and problem solving. And most importantly, they actually require students to write. And so kids are having lots of opportunity to show what they can do, not just show what they've memorized. That's Laura Slover, CEO of PARC. PARC is a nonprofit that oversees the creation of one of the two big tests that align with the new Common Core standards. I wanted to talk to Laura because there's been a lot of controversy about these tests. One thing everyone agrees with, they are different than the pure bubble tests of the days of yore. They entail fewer multiple-choice questions and require far more writing and complex math. Basically, they're harder. For some, too hard. Controversy has erupted over test questions requiring fourth graders to sit down and write a five-paragraph analytical essay. But for a lot of people who are worried about an education system that accepts low standards, the fact that they're setting the bar high is a good thing. When asked about the tests, Laura stresses that educators are central to the process— Every question, she says, is reviewed by at least 30 teachers, and the passages students read are chosen from real works of literature and news stories. As she was telling me this, I was thinking, how nice. But how much does a beautifully designed test question really matter? A lot, argues Slover. Parents probably think that testing is a necessary inconvenience that sort of doesn't give them real information or isn't useful for their child. And and I would argue with that. You know, I was a teacher and I, I constructed lots of assessments in my day. Um, and my goal was to make sure that kids were learning something new, that they had to apply knowledge in a new way, not just regurgitate something they'd memorized. So good tests that do that can drive good classroom practice and can ensure kids are staying on track, but also that they're um, having learning experience where they can apply those what they've learned to new situations. All the experts we talked to agreed. There's good reason for the existence of the tests. 
But as Linda Darling-Hammond said, they're not where they should be. There are signs of change. University of Kentucky is developing a new assessment tool that would include portfolios of student work. Electronic Arts, the video game company, teamed up with ETS, the testing company, to create a game, SimCity EDU, that assesses kids stealthily as they play. But that's still many years off when your child uploads her writing portfolio or jumps on a video game to show what she knows. In the meantime, how we use tests is already changing. Wielding test results as a stick to punish teachers, students, and schools has distorted incentives, and many states are moving away from such policies. Forgive me for wading into the weeds here, but I'll whack through them like a husk varna. George W.'s No Child Left Behind, which mandated the use of standardized tests, has been replaced with ESSA, Obama's Every Student Succeeds Act. This shiny new acronym puts more power back in the hands of states. Each state gets to design their own, bear with me, accountability framework, which means they get to decide how to measure schools, not just with test scores, but things like high school graduation rates, chronic absenteeism, suspension rates. Depending on what each state comes up with, ESSA could make the way we measure schools far more nuanced. Standardized tests. Love them or hate them, they're woven into the fabric of our education system. Many of us adults can recall a time when they didn't exist. But there's one really important group of people who can't. And ironically, we rarely hear what they think or how they feel about this hot potato they've been handed. Next up, from the mouths of babes. Carol Lloyd here with Like a Sponge. We talked to a lot of grown-ups about standardized tests. Their perspectives varied, but they also shared something. They all speak from a distance. For these experts, tests fit like little puzzle pieces into grand abstract systems of education, accountability, pedagogy. But what about the experience of going to school in an era of test-based accountability? What does that feel like? So we went looking for the voices too often missing from this conversation, the kids. Dylan Allswing, our intrepid 12-year-old reporter, ventured into the field at his Oakland Middle School. How do you feel about standardized tests, just in general? I just don't like them. They are frustrating, they are irritating, and as it turns out, actually, they don't really matter. I feel that standardized testing is unfair and test kids on stuff they don't know. It's just really hard, and, and there are a lot of questions that I didn't know on the test. So half the time, I'm not, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I don't think it's a bad thing, but also it gets quite annoying when it comes to... This is what we expected. Kids complaining about the trials and tedium of testing, especially when tests don't accurately mirror what they've been studying. But we also heard this. The questions are medium, like not too hard and not too easy, so I think it's good and... Sometimes the math problems are fun and interesting. I actually kind of do enjoy testing just because it's 
like you don't have to pay attention in class you just get to do the work which is kind of enjoyable in some ways these kids who were raised in the era of test-based accountability question it less than the adults we talk to for them it's like gravity it's always been there maybe weighing them down at times but they understand its rationale can you really see why the teachers would say that they're important it is important so value is the district any district where you are can, you know, have a clear sense of where their kids are at. They exist so that the state can see how well your school is doing. Because schools have standards that they have to teach. And the state, they need one big test so they can see how they compare to everybody else. It was interesting how many kids, when asked how they felt about the tests, answered with theories and sometimes misconceptions about how the tests work. One boy speculated if the test scores were high, his school would get a raise. Another kid, a seventh grader, worried that his test scores would have far-reaching consequences for his future. It could hurt my score because, and these are scores that follow you around for the rest of your life. Colleges look at them, high schools look at them. This isn't true, by the way. But that heavy sense of responsibility was common. Kids really seem to like the idea of showing what they know. The ones with the skills measured by the test enjoy the tests. But for those kids who felt their talents were being missed, there was a sense of being underappreciated. This year I've gotten a lot better at art because I took art classes. But people don't actually test that, so I can't, I can't show people that I'm good at that. Kids' favorite testing topic? The tribal norms that no adult is privy to. Other children's behavior. Some kids, they say, bubble in random answers because they don't care. Others say they've observed cheating or heard about cheating. One girl noted that kids in her class had figured out how to game the spelling section by using the back button to the essay section, which happened to offer a spell check tool. I was talking to my dad, and I was like, I mentioned it. He was like, that's cheating. But then I was like, it's not cheating if it's on the test already. Isn't this, too, a way of showing what you know? Proficient and I know it. Last week, I corralled a random and entirely unscientific selection of my colleagues to ask them one simple question. What's the best way to really learn something? A. Use a highlighter. B. Reread the material. C. Watch a video about it. D. Take a test. I like to highlight passages. I think that's the best way. Summarize and highlight the key passages. Summarize the material. I think highlighting but repeating it to yourself. Summarizing it. Highlighting key passages. Carol Lloyd with Like a Sponge, where we explore what science says about how kids learn. And this month, we're exploring testing, the good, the bad, and the unbelievable YouTube songs dedicated to them. What does the test say? Get your number two pencils out. Your number two pencils out. Get your number two pencils out. What the test say? Just kidding. We ventured into the turbulent waters of standardized testing, even hearing from the adorable little sailors, the children, who are growing up on these stormy education seas. But now we're going to take a sharp turn into the science of learning and ask the question I posed of my unsuspecting colleagues. What is the best way to learn something? Their answers didn't surprise me. Nobody got it right. 
except for two people who were raised in another country. I think take a test is the best way. We'll get back to the reasons behind that mystery in a moment. But first, I'd like to introduce you to the man who spent decades studying what are the best ways for people to learn. Henry Rodiger is a professor of psychology and brain sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. He's also co-author of the book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. Rodiger studies something called retrieval practice, an idea that should make sense once we dive into, cue the uplifting arpeggio, the beautiful land of learning science. What we find in our research is that the act of being asked a question and answering it, it provides a great boost to memory later for uh, a retention of the information. That's right. The act of being asked a question leads to learning. It's called the testing effect. When compared to rereading, highlighting, summarizing some of the most popular study techniques, testing squashes the competition. But if that sounds like it's an argument for more end-of-the-year assessments, it's not. So the kind of quizzes we advocate are either low-stakes or no-stakes quizzes. They don't count for much of a grade. They're done to help students learn the material. This, of course, has big implications for how kids study. Should they quiz themselves or reread that chapter? Yes, we find that rereading... doesn't have as much impact as students think it will. In surveys of college students, when you ask them, what's the most common way you study? They say, well, I highlighted the text or I underlined it, and then I go back and reread my highlightings. I do the same thing with my notes from class. And, you know, those aren't terrible things to do, but they're just much more effective means by which to learn, one of which is quizzing. Rodiger has also found that if you really want to learn something, cramming all at once isn't the way to do it. It's much better to be quizzed over time. If you ask students, when do they study? Well, they mostly study the two days before the test, which is uh, not great. You want them to spread out their study. It's also important how you approach the material. Is it useful to focus on one tiny skill out of context or weave it all together? If I just uh, practice a free throw over and over and over, Uh, I can get better at free throws that way. But, of course, in an actual game, you'll be running up and down the court, and suddenly you'll have to stop and take a free throw. That's very different conditions from the way you learn, just standing there with no pressure on you, nobody around, shooting 100 free throws. So the idea is you need to practice uh, the skills in as much as you can, the context that will later occur to you. In other words, memorizing facts or learning skills out of context doesn't prepare you to use that learning. Like in language class, where you memorize hundreds of verbs and vocabulary words, then you come face-to-face with a native speaker of that language, and you draw a complete blank. Why? You can't retrieve the information you know. And here is where the idea of retrieval practice is so essential in terms of understanding how the brain actually learns things. We're, you know, filling people's heads with knowledge. So we worry about getting the information in. Uh, What we really need to worry about in addition to that is having students practice getting it out. And that's what retrieval practice does. It uh, forces you to say, you might read something over and over and think, okay, I really know that. But until you're asked questions about it and you can answer those questions, you haven't really demonstrated that you know it. 
And by the act of answering those questions, you will also further strengthen and consolidate your knowledge and make it easier to retrieve the next time you try. Right. I I remember after reading your book that there's a phrase that stuck with me in terms of helping my child at home with her homework um, is the concept of illusions of knowing. And so I love that idea that your child always may come back and say, oh, yeah, I know what I, I know it. I'm ready. Right. You might have understood the concept when you read it, but if you can't look at that key term at the end of the chapter, call it to mind, give a definition, give examples, then you don't truly know it. Thinking of testing as a tool for learning is kind of a game changer. It's not just a dipstick for measuring what you've learned. It's a strategy for making it stick. Gotta make this quick. Gotta make it stick. My hands get really clammy, and they start to sweat a lot. My chest feels really tight. It's like there's some hard knot in there about to explode. And it also feels really heavy, like my whole body's weighed down. My fingers and toes also get really cold. I think I just feel like there's this impending doom that's coming on me that I can't control, and that there's nothing I can do to fix what I've done wrong. Fight or flight. It's the body's response to danger. Your heartbeat speeds up. You get a surge of adrenaline. This isn't the time to think critically or analyze a problem. It's a time to react instinctively and get out of danger. But this kid isn't talking about escaping from a bear. She's talking about sitting down to take a test. And the problem is, when taking a test makes a kid's body respond like she's facing a mortal threat, how accurately can that test assess a kid's thinking? This is Carol Lloyd with Like a Sponge. If your kids took standardized tests this past spring and they were nervous about them, they weren't alone. An estimated 20 to 40 percent of students starting as early as second grade suffer from anxiety about tests. Research shows kids have more anxiety about high-stakes tests than routine classroom testing. And high levels of anxiety can negatively impact kids' performance. There's even a whole genre of YouTube videos devoted to quelling student nerves about testing. Let it go, let it go. I will let my knowledge show. Let it go, let it go. I will show. Dr. Steve Orma, a clinical psychologist who specializes in anxiety, works with teens to help when testing triggers fight-or-flight responses. So what causes kids to get anxious about testing? What causes anxiety, it's not the environment that you're in. It's what's going on in the child's mind. So if failing a test, for example, is really a huge thing that, that a child or a teen is afraid of, they put a lot of weight into it. Then the, and, and then if they think I'm going to fail or I'm not going to do well on this test, that, that's going to create a big anxiety because how large the anxiety is is going to be based on how big of a value is it at threat. And then the parents that, that can definitely have a huge impact on if, if they're putting a lot of pressure or the, the child thinks or perceives, you know, I don't want to let my parents down. They really want me to do well. That can create a, a lot of that can create more anxiety. How does this affect kids' performance on tests? Basically, anxiety, if you think of, I said, anxiety is a thought process. It's this worried thought process. The louder that thought process gets in the child's mind, 
they can't think because you can't be focused on two things at the same time, right? So the louder the anxiety gets and those worries go in the child's mind, the harder it is for them to focus on the test and their performance then is going to go down. A lot of times if it's test anxiety and the child isn't performing well, it's not that they don't know the material. Sometimes they know the material, they know the subject, but when they get to the test, they can freeze up and not have access to that information. So how should parents respond if their child or their teen is starting to show signs that they're getting really anxious around testing? Because especially for teens, the testing starts to take on sort of high stakes in terms of graduating from high school, going to college. Yeah. What parents want to do is support and encourage their kids to do the best they can do and give them the tools. So we, the focus should be on learning and enjoying the learning process and learning good learning skills and study skills and test-taking skills. There's a lot of skills that teens can learn to learn how to take tests better. That can help reduce anxiety because you want to build the child's confidence. If you put pressure, if you say, you better get an A on that test, or you know, if you don't get this score on the SAT, you're not going to get into you know, X university, that, that's going to increase the anxiety. What sort of things could kids do to overcome that panic, the, the anxiety? Are there exercises that you work with kids? I mean, cognitive behavioral therapy is very sort of, it's sort of practical. Yeah, it's very practical and it's very skills-based. And I can go over a couple of things. Number one, just normalize. So this is something a parent can do if the child comes to them or they know the child is getting anxious with tests to say, you know, it's okay, honey. It's don't, you know, it's normal to get anxious. In fact, you know, some anxiety up to let's say a moderate level. So let's say zero up to five is you can still perform perfectly well. And in fact, there's arguments that you could perform better when you have a little anxiety because you got some adrenaline going. It makes you more alert. So some anxiety sharpens your thinking. Parents can educate the kids about anxiety and that it's normal. Everybody experiences it. And um, that to not react like, oh, that's not good. We need to get rid of that. It's not a bad thing. It's just you want to learn how to manage it. So what about things kids can do before the test? to get nervousness or anxiety under control? The tendency with anxiety is to avoid it. It's, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be anxious. And what you want to do is say, you know, it's okay to be anxious. It's okay to have be aware of those thoughts. But what they could do is they could get a piece of paper or on the computer, just dump out all those worries. Ask themselves, what am I worried about with the test? So if they say, well, I'm worried about failing. Okay. Then you can do what's called a downward arrow technique, which is basically if their if their fear is I'm worried about failing, let's say, then you ask them, well, what's bad about that? What does that mean to you? And then that will go to the underlying fear. Well, it might be, well, then I may not pass the class. Okay, well, what's bad about that? Well, then I, I'll then I um, that I won't be able to graduate, or um, I won't be able to get into my you know this university I want to get into. Oh, what's bad about that? Well, then I'm going to let my parents down because usually the worry is not just the test; it's what failing the test or not getting a certain grade on the test means to them. So, if your kids get anxious about tests, you can empower them. Number one, help them see their anxiety can be their secret superpower. They give a damn, right? They're going to bring their A-game. Number two, reassure them that their deep, dark fears underlying failing that test, say, disappointing you or failing at life, those aren't rational. You'll still love them no matter how they do. 
and life will still give them plenty of opportunities. Finally, give your kids a trick or two to change the anxiety channel. For instance, they don't need to calm down. One study showed that embracing excitement before a test improves scores compared to the control group that was told to stay calm. And if your child's feeling really anxious, suggest taking 10 minutes to write down all their fears. Research shows this can make a big difference in how well kids perform. You've been listening to Like a Sponge. Special thanks to Ryan Smith, Linda Darling-Hammond, Laura Slover, Steve Orma, Henry Rodiger, and all the kids who talked with us about testing. Like a Sponge is produced by Carol Lloyd and Charity Ferreira of Great Schools with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Sound production by Christopher Ferreira. For more information, including links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit us at greatschools.org forward slash like a sponge. Thank you.